outdoors take us to summers away or winter adventures and afternoon getaways. Your dedicated Fidelity Advisor can help you open those doors by working with you on a comprehensive plan to help you reach your wealth's full potential because doors were meant to be opened. Visit fidelity.com slash wealth. Investment minimum supply. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. Member NYSE SIPC. Vacations are always good. Sometimes they're even great. And Celebrity Cruises is about to ruin all of that. Because once you explore with us, you'll never want a vacation any other way. And with new Quick Caribbean Escapes, you'll never want a weekend any other way either. Celebrity Cruises. Nothing comes close. Visit Celebrity.com, call 1-800-CELEBRITY, or contact your travel advisor. Ships Registry, Malta and Ecuador. Edith Wharton opens her posthumously published unfinished final novel, The Buccaneers, with a scene set on a sunny, sultry day of midsummer in 1870. The characters we first meet in the novel are sitting on the wide veranda of the fashionable yet rustic Grand Union Hotel in Saratoga Springs, no doubt sipping iced lemonade to diffuse the heat of the afternoon. Saratoga was long famous in the 19th century for its hot springs, beautiful scenery, and the racing. It was, you could say, the Newport of the stylish set long before that seaside social enclave set on the Rhode Island coast found its height of popularity. In the early pages of the novel, we meet Wharton's teenage protagonists, the St. George sisters Nan and Virginia, the dark-haired Conchita Clausen, and the stylish Lizzie Elmsworth and her sister Mabel all young daughters of wealthy New York families approaching marriageable age. As the girls sit and stroll on the veranda or run about on the lawns, we begin to understand that the stakes in their young lives could not be higher or less carefree. Seated watching over all are their mothers, Mrs. St. George and Mrs. Elmsworth. These families are from substantial but new money, and while secure in financial status, it would require new strategies and new social tactics to make sure the St. George's, the Elmsworths, and certainly the Clausens were allowed to pass through the gates of society. That seemingly hospitable, lazy hotel veranda was, in reality, very much a runway to see and be seen, to judge, categorize, elevate, or eliminate. The real-life models Edith Wharton used to portray her spirited yet naive, fine young heroines were, in both truth and fiction, known as the Buccaneers, young women for whom, in order to secure a strong foothold in New York's closed, exclusive social hierarchy, were required and often flat-out forced to marry British and European aristocrats, thereby securing a coronet and a title which no one on Fifth Avenue's social jury could refuse or ignore. Funny how a British title could wash away any whiff of nouveau riche status. And indeed, in Wharton's characters, we see traces of some of the most famous of America's real-life million-dollar princesses as they came to be known, several of whom Wharton, of course, knew personally. We see Jenny Jerome, the future Lady Randolph Churchill, we see Consuelo Iznaga, whose Cuban-American family was clearly held at society's gates. And we see Consuelo Iznaga's namesake, perhaps the most famous of all buccaneers, Consuelo Vanderbilt. So much of whose life was meticulously manipulated by her mother, Alva, to shore up any of social New York's perceived social deficiencies. Today's show only begins to tell their stories, but lays some important groundwork in understanding the reality of America's million-dollar princesses, who a few of them were, why they made the marriages that they did, why the Europeans found these wealthy young heiresses so desirable, and just what a few of those marriages came to in the end. (laughs) 
Hello, I'm Carl Raymond, the host of the Gilded Gentleman History Podcast, where every two weeks we journey into corners light and dark for a look at America's Gilded Age, France's Belle Epoque, and England's late Victorian and Edwardian eras. 17-year-old Consuelo Vanderbilt didn't quite dare look up at her mother. Seated on a tufted velvet sofa across from her mother in the drawing room of Lady Paget in London's Mayfair, Consuelo knew full well that she was under the scrutiny of the harshest kind. Alva Vanderbilt, relentless in her preparation of her daughter for the best marriage possible, had set her eagle gaze on marrying the quiet, inquisitive, gentle Consuelo off to one of Britain's titled elite in order to secure the best title that she could. None of this, of course, had anything to do with Consuelo's best interests, you see. Consuelo was an heiress of the Vanderbilt fortune and would be well provided for regardless of whom she married. This was all about Alva. Alva was to divorce her husband, Willie K. Vanderbilt, And what better way to ensure continued social acceptance in the face of a divorce than to remind anyone who cared that she was the mother of a duchess? Consuelo had been brought by her mother to London, where she was now face-to-face with the American Lady Paget, the former Minnie Stevens. Minnie, now Lady Paget as a result of her own advantageous enough marriage to a titled Brit, had set up shop in London and offered her services as a kind of international marriage broker. For a substantial fee, of course, to provide titled eligible British aristocrats for American daughters with mothers in need. Consuelo was on the block, surveyed, assessed, critiqued, and judged. And what made it all the more painful was she knew it full well. As Alva and Lady Paget discussed how the process would proceed, Consuelo stared down at her dress. Her future was being sealed, and she had no say in it whatsoever. But wait, my friends, until the end. Because that isn't quite the end of Consuelo's story. From the beginning of the 1870s up until 1914, when World War I broke out in Europe, more than 450 young American women married European aristocrats. Over 200 of them married into the British nobility alone. This rash of transcontinental marriages was not without purpose and was the result of some very specific factors which we'll examine in a moment. Some of these young women found what they, or more likely their families, most wanted— a secure place in society. Others found that the price was a difficult and painful existence trapped and isolated. Some found deep and unforgettable tragedy. And some indeed found love. And some found that love when and where they least expected it. So while there is sadness to many of these stories, there is resilience, there is power of the best kind, and there is love. A number of these alliances led to future legacies of positive impact. As we've often discussed, the world of American society in the years following the Civil War was one in which some levels of American society tried to find a social structure to secure their places as prominently as possible, or in fact, create one or make one up. Lacking a fortune that went back to the post-revolutionary days of the New Republic or being part of the wealthy, if restrained, merchant class that had built New York's first economic structure, choices were few. A fortune, even if substantial, if it was new, was considered unacceptable. Just having enough money wasn't enough. If Mrs. Astor or her henchman Ward McAllister failed to include you on their lists of the likely and loyal then you were done for. As severe economic shifts hit Britain and the rest of Europe in the last quarter of the 19th century, one of the easiest choices, and that was relative, was to head to Europe and search out eligible nobility to marry. Once you or your mother found an eligible contender, matches were easier than you might think. Chances are that your newfound duke really needed the money that your father would ante up as a marriage settlement. Fifth Avenue socialites found British titles in particular irresistible as they tried to mirror their newly made-up social structure on the very one, by the way, that America, once upon a time, had fought a revolution to reject. 
In fact, to make it particularly easy for social shopping for singles, a publication called Titled Americans was launched, which not only included a list of the most current transcontinental marriages to keep one up to date, but included a very handy addition, a current list of unmarried title European men at the back for easy shopping. To make this just a bit more complicated, not just any title would do, particularly in Britain. So first, let's take a look at the system of British nobility. The peerage, which encompasses the titled British aristocrats, numbered just about 1,500 at the end of the 19th century, far more than the supposed 400 of New York society as determined by Mrs. Astor and Ward McAllister. The peerage system consisted of a strict hierarchy of titles, starting with the highest, after which came the royal family itself. The titles were all hereditary, and unfortunately for the capitalistic American sensibility, it was one thing that just couldn't be bought. Well, the title couldn't, but the man could. At the top were the dukes. This was the brass ring, but then, as now, there were very few. Even today, they number not much more than 20. A Marquis came next, which got you the titles of Lord and Lady, but then came the Earl, which was a good solid middle title. There were many, many Earls, hundreds actually. It wasn't the most exclusive of titles, but certainly respected, and it did the job. Following the Earl were the Viscounts, and lastly, the Barons. The entire system functioned on several key factors. If you had a title, certainly at the level of Duke, you owned land through your estate grant and your property was essentially a working farm and the income came from the tenant farmers in the sale of crops and produce. The British system functioned on a system called primogeniture, which dictated that the eldest son inherited the property and the fortune. Second and third sons got some form of consolation prize and daughters, well, maybe that old tapestry in the drawing room. If one married into this system, the most important, no-holes-barred first responsibility was to produce an heir, and perhaps a spare, as quickly as possible to ensure the continuation of the line and holdings. Other European systems of nobility didn't quite work this way, which made French and other European titles notoriously suspect and unreliable. A French duke might have the title, but that could sometimes be about it. Toward the end of the 19th century, while the Americans were vying for acceptance into New York society, a particular series of events led to a desperate need for many of these British nobles to find a way to raise substantial cash extremely quickly. And for them, this could mean a very available and wealthy American wife. The cause was the failure of the agriculture and economic structure that was quite simply paying for the British elite, and the greatest culprit was American wheat. Post-Civil War, the expanded production of wheat and the ability to ship not only the wheat but other produce internationally at lower prices sent the old British system on a downward spiral. Estate incomes began to rapidly dry up and dukes, marquises, and earls couldn't see a way to fix the problem with their own dying farms and most certainly weren't willing to curb their expensive lifestyles either. The answer was simple. Marry one of the growing plethora of young, beautiful, well-educated, and well-traveled American beauties who in turn needed their titles and prestige to give them social rank in an American society that had none. Many let the women come to them, and others, wishing to speed up the process, set sail for America to go shopping. In addition to their money, the American girls had many more advantages over their English counterparts. English girls had not been educated in the same way as the more cosmopolitan American girls. Many young aristocratic English women were quite cloistered, their clothes certainly not Parisian fashions, as their families clearly spent more time and focus on the well-being and success of their brothers. In most cases, the best a young English girl of nobility could perhaps hope for was a marriage to a distant cousin with a respectable income and a nice enough country house. 
Many American girls of wealthy Gilded Age families were something altogether different. They were far more worldly, taught to speak easily on a variety of subjects to a variety of people. They usually spoke two or three European languages fluently and had spent time in Europe since childhood, or even been educated there. They wore the most elaborate and stylish clothes from Paris, but most of all, they had a secure self-confidence and, as a result, a direct sex appeal that the British male aristocratic set found irresistible. This parade of American heiresses going to Europe to grab titles began in the 1870s, just at the time Wharton set her opening scene of The Buccaneers. The first marriage generally considered to have begun this long train of nomadic nuptials took place in 1874, and it was the wedding of 19-year-old Jenny Jerome to Lord Randolph Churchill, the third son of the seventh Duke of Marlborough. A third son was never going to inherit the lion's share of any estate, but a title was a title, and it seems that at least in the beginning, Jenny and Lord Randolph fell helplessly in love. Clara and Leonard Jerome, Jenny's parents, were part of the set who met with social disapproval and a lack of acceptance back in Knickerbocker, New York. Clara had come from a relatively wealthy family by Palmyra, New York standards, but rumors abounded that she had Iroquois blood in her veins. Leonard came from a family with little money yet, but an unbridled determination to make as much as he could, almost any way he could. He and Clara married and moved to New York after living in Cobble Hill, Brooklyn, giving birth to three daughters, Jenny, Clara, and Leonie. A fourth daughter died in childhood. According to accounts, Leonard Jerome was a big personality, flamboyant and aggressive enough to make and lose several fortunes in this new world of investment and speculation, and as a result, he gained the name the King of Wall Street. He also held a not-too-secret reputation for philandering. By the mid-1860s, his wealth allowed him to move the family to the most fashionable part of New York at mid-century, Madison Square, in the neighborhood around 23rd Street where Broadway and Fifth Avenue intersect. Leonard, anxious to show off his wealth in a more ostentatious way than the previous brownstone elite, built an elegant, towering new mansion that dominated Madison Square Park. The mansion was nothing like anything New Yorkers had seen at this point. Fashionable New York was well settled into the ugly, if exactly identical, brownstones that lined the streets from the beginnings of Fifth Avenue at Washington Square Park up to Madison Square. Jerome's mansion was six stories, had an 18th-century-style mansard roof and a French-inspired facade, and boasted a white and gold ballroom with fountains that sprayed both champagne and cologne. And better yet, the mansion had its own 600-seat private opera house. It was very much this mansion that established precedent and that set the stage for the far grander creations that were shortly to line Fifth Avenue further uptown. One does, I suppose, have to wonder, though, as several historians have, about the wisdom of installing a fountain that sprayed cologne. Clara Jerome's single goal was to get into acceptable society and to get her daughters married off. With all this kind of thing going on, meaning shady identities, not-so-hidden affairs, questions of ancestry, Clara knew that suitable matches for her daughters were just never going to happen in New York. So Clara announced that she was going to take her girls off to Paris and conquer that society. And in 1867, that is exactly what she did. And with that, I'm going to take a short break, but I'll be back to continue the story. NetCredit is here to say yes to a personal loan or line of credit when other lenders say no. Apply in minutes and get a decision as soon as the same day. Loans offered by NetCredit or lending partner banks and serviced by NetCredit. Application subject to review and approval. Learn more at netcredit.com slash partner. NetCredit. Credit to the people. This is a big year. The Ohio Lottery's golden anniversary. 50 years of excitement, of growing jackpots and crossed fingers. 50 years of funding for schools, of changed lives and brightened days. 50 years of fun, and that is worth celebrating. So watch for can't-miss promotions, huge events, and new games that will make the Ohio Lottery's 50th year its biggest one yet. 
Learn more at funturns50.com. Want to connect with a family member who doesn't speak your language? Then check out the language learning program Rosetta Stone on desktop or as an app. Rosetta Stone is designed to immerse you in the language you're learning through an intuitive process. Plus, the True Accent feature even gives you feedback on your pronunciation. And with a lifetime membership, you have access to all 25 offered languages. Get started today. Visit rosettastone.com backslash pod 50 to get 50% off your lifetime membership now. That's rosettastone.com backslash pod 50 for 50% off. And I'm back. I'm Carl Raymond, the host of the Gilded Gentleman History Podcast. It is enormously important to draw the distinction between New York society of the mid-19th century and the Parisian society that Clara and her daughters entered. Paris was at the height of the Second Empire, ruled by Napoleon III and his elegant, beautiful wife, the Empress Eugenie. Since coming to power in 1848 as president of France, then self-proclaimed emperor in 1852, Louis Napoleon had completely changed the physical and social nature of Paris. The old medieval city was swept away, and with the genius of Baron Georges Eugène Haussmann and the funding of Louis Napoleon, Paris emerged with the most extravagant stage set imaginable, with wide boulevards, grand monuments, and landmarks such as the great Paris Opera and the drama of the glittering society literally spilling out into the streets. The social world set by Empress Eugénie was welcoming to foreigners, as long as they had style and they had cash. The Empress herself was an important arbiter of fashion, and some feel that there has been no other monarch that has influenced fashion and style as much as she, although her influence is thought mostly forgotten today. Eugenie insisted on great style not only for herself, but for her ladies of the court. She demanded to be surrounded by only those wearing the most fashionable dresses and the most dramatic and expensive jewels. For the Jerome girls entering this glittering world, it was clear old New York had nothing on this. There were no judgments on one's past or exclusion from society as a result of passionate entanglements. The elite Parisian society was full of intrigue, sexual politics, and permissiveness and a sultry, suggestive tone that underlay everything. And this was the world of the great courtesans, many of the great bejeweled elegant ladies at court functions, who were indeed available for company, for the men, married or not, and of course, at a price. Do have a listen to my show number 41 on the lives of the great courtesans. For the young Jerome daughters, Jenny, Clara, and Leonie, this was a far cry from the uptight, restricted, Puritan-based world they left behind in the ballrooms of Fifth Avenue. The glamour and intrigue of the court of Eugenie and Louis Napoleon, however, was to end abruptly and dramatically in 1870 when the Franco-Prussian War broke out and the court dispersed and fled, and so did the Jeromes. It was no longer safe to remain in Paris, and in a dramatic exit, grabbing only a few items that they could carry, Clara escorted her daughters across the Channel to London, where they were met by Leonard with cash and who set up the family in the safety of Piccadilly. Clara's original idea of creating an entree into Parisian society was now no longer an option— and the much more difficult option now at hand was to wage assault on the tightly controlled and more complex British aristocracy. Jenny and both of her sisters indeed landed aristocratic marriages, but of course, Jenny's is the most renowned. The key to crashing British society, if you weren't born into it, was a simple one, relatively. The key to getting in was Albert Edward, the Prince of Wales, known to all, as Bertie. In many ways, similar to Mrs. Astor in her gilded drawing room back in New York, Bertie held the keys to society, who got in, and more importantly, who stayed in. Much social machination and intrigue revolved around currying favor with the prince to secure an entree and to rise in status. As writers and historians often note, the Prince of Wales, in his royal role overall, had very little really, to do. As he waited around to become king and Victoria herself showed no signs of stopping, 
He simply had little to occupy him except to amuse himself and to spend tremendous amounts of money in doing so. Society hostesses, in order to attract the attention of the future king and remain in his circle through dinners, balls, shooting parties, country weekends, and endless social events, to amuse him and present him with as many young, attractive women as possible with whom he could flirt. There was no choice, but the new American girls making their way across the pond were frankly the only choice. Bertie found these new American women a fresh alternative to the mundane of Mayfair. As was clear with Jenny, with their confidence, also often came a distinct seductive attraction. And Bertie was more than happy to welcome Jenny and her sisters into his social circle called the Marlboro Set for Marlboro House where he resided. The pieces on the social chessboard moved dramatically on a summer night in 1873 in the midst of the yachting season at Cowes on the Isle of Wight. At an afternoon ball, Jenny, aged 19, was seen and asked to dance by the handsome young Lord Randolph Churchill, the third son of the seventh Duke of Marlborough. Their connection, it seems, was instant. Jenny clearly possessed an allure along with an intense sexuality and passionate nature to which Randolph Spencer Churchill helplessly responded. Three days after the ball, he asked her to marry him, and she accepted. This engagement was problematic and didn't sit well with either set of parents. From the Jerome side, even though titled, Churchill still wasn't a duke and never would be. He was a distant third son who would get no further title or money. The Duke and Duchess of Marlborough were equally not supportive. To marry even a third son to an American family of unknown and dubious background would be beyond the pale. Of course, part of the deal was the marriage settlement for which Leonard Jerome, under duress, agreed to pay a million dollars in today's money, which the Churchills needed. Blenheim Palace, the ancestral Churchill seat, it seems, needed a few repairs. Even though Jenny and Lord Randolph seemingly loved each other, the marriage, like many to follow, came at a price. It was the Prince of Wales who intervened and offered his support of the alliance, and the following April in 1874, eight months after their first meeting, Jenny and Randolph wed at the British Embassy in Paris. Seven months after the marriage, their first son was born, named Winston. This first American-Anglo marriage is important on several levels. First, of course, is that Jenny's son, who is said to have demonstrated the drive, ambition, level-headedness, and conviction of his mother, to indeed become, one could say, the greatest statesman of the 20th century. And secondly, one of those facing the closed doors of society back on Fifth Avenue, one of them had done one better in the mall and become a titled aristocrat. Jenny Jerome, with a shady background, philandering father, unsuccessfully social climbing mother, was now a member of the British aristocracy. New York society would be forced to accept her and her family. The scorecard for the invaders had just recorded a win. Having broken the ice, Jenny's marriage opened the door for other British aristocrats to now go shopping on American shores, seeking fortunes to top up their own, to allow them to live lifestyles that they wanted and to repair their crumbling country homes. One such young nobleman, George Montague, the Viscount Mandeville, and one day to be the Duke of Manchester, whose ancestral seat, the stately Kimbolton Castle in Cambridgeshire, He decided proactively to sail to America and not wait for a selection of appropriate prospects to come to him. He found himself in Saratoga Springs in northern New York State, and as we've said, Saratoga was known for its racing and social scene, particularly in the years before Newport took all the glamour and all the money. Let's remember, this was where and when Wharton set her opening scene of the Buccaneers. It was at that same Grand Union Hotel that 23-year-old Viscount Mandeville, known as Kim, met the young Consuelo Iznaga, who incidentally had been one of Jenny and her sister's great friends back in Paris and London. 
Wharton captures her in The Buccaneers as the character Conchita Clausen. The Cuban-American Consuelo Iznaga, daughter of a diplomat and wealthy merchant, had completely charmed English society, and particularly the Prince of Wales, with her light southern accent that the English found exotic and charming, and by her frequent impromptu singing of southern songs in Mayfair drawing rooms. It's said she even gave Bertie a few lessons on how to play the banjo. It also seems she was even known to light up a cigar. The prince was captivated and society's path was cleared for Consuelo as it had been for Jenny. Despite the Isnaga's family connections and ties to the South, deeply unpopular following the Civil War, the Isnagas were wealthy nonetheless, and Kim needed an infusion of cash to keep his ancestral home and family dynasty from crumbling. Kim's reputation was dodgy at best regarding finances and assignations with women. For the Isnaga social connections, however, the prospect here was promising. Though currently only a Viscount, Kim was clearly going to inherit his father's title, and Consuelo would become a Duchess. It seems titles, like money, talk. Just about two years after Jenny married Churchill, Consuelo Isnaga wed the Viscount Mandeville on May 22, 1876, at Grace Church in New York. And Consuelo's father antied up a dowry that's been reported as being approximately $6 million in modern currency. But the real prize was the prestige that it gave the outsider Isnagas. Upon arriving in Europe to settle, first it was said that Consuelo, quote, took London by storm, unquote, and became popular in aristocratic circles thanks to her connections with the prince. However, the excitement and glamour soon faded, and as Kim's flagrant spending and unreliability increased, Consuelo found herself spending a great deal of time alone, not only at Kim Bolton Castle, but at another family property, a remote castle in Ireland. While Consuelo may have become a duchess, as she in fact did in 1890 at the death of her husband's father, for the time being, a duke-in-waiting was good enough. Duke to be or not, Kim, the Viscount Mandeville, however, matched his reputation, it seems, and was not a remotely reliable husband. And Consuelo's life, not long after she returned to England with him, became full of sadness and loneliness. She produced an heir and two beautiful young daughters, both of whom were to die from the ravages of consumption. Kim was rarely with his family, preferring to be off in London gambling, spending through the remaining fortune, and launching a very public and deeply embarrassing affair with the music hall singer Bessie Bellwood. Unsure of his whereabouts much of the time, it's been reported that Consuelo had no choice but to write faithfully to him in care of his London club. Consuelo Isnaga had been a good friend to Alva Vanderbilt. They had met during their school days in New York. It was Consuelo, though still not yet a duchess, who was Alva's guest of honor at her famous ball in 1883. I can only imagine the conversations now lost to history that perhaps Consuelo and Alva had in private. Although she finally did become the Duchess of Manchester after her father-in-law's death in 1890, Consuelo's husband Kim's behavior never changed, and he himself died only two years later at age 39. Despite her sad and tragic marriage, it is reported that she fascinated many of the aristocracy with whom she met and socialized with her unique blend of American beauty, charm, social ease, and wit. Consuelo maintained her connections with the Prince of Wales set, continuing on with many of those connections as her life as an independent woman followed after her husband's death. To see bits of what Consuelo Isnaga left behind, we have the chance to see her stunning Manchester tiara now in the collection of the Victoria and Albert Museum in London, made for her by Cartier in 1903. Alva Vanderbilt marked the closeness of her friendship with Consuelo by christening her own daughter, Consuelo, as a tribute to her friend, who was, of course, one day herself to marry a duke. And with that, I'll be taking a short break. And I'll be back to look at the rest of the story of Consuelo Vanderbilt and the Million Dollar Princesses. 
Want to connect with a family member who doesn't speak your language? Then check out the language learning program Rosetta Stone on desktop or as an app. Rosetta Stone is designed to immerse you in the language you're learning through an intuitive process. Plus, the True Accent feature even gives you feedback on your pronunciation. And with a lifetime membership, you have access to all 25 offered languages. Get started today. Visit rosettastone.com backslash pod 50 to get 50% off your lifetime membership now. That's rosettastone.com backslash pod 50 for 50% off. Hey everyone, it's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for up to half the cost. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Savings based on cost of Consumer Cellular single line 1, 5, and 10 gig data plans with unlimited talk and text compared to lowest cost single line postpaid unlimited talk text and data plans offered by T-Mobile and Verizon January 2024. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley. For the love of home. And we're back. I'm Carl Raymond, host of the Gilded Gentleman History Podcast, and we are taking a look at several of the stories of the Gilded Age's daughters who married into titled aristocracy to shore up their family's social status and were known as the Gilded Age's million-dollar princesses. Willie K. Vanderbilt, as William Kissam Vanderbilt was known, and Alva produced their first child in 1877, a girl, Consuelo, whom, as we saw, Alva had named for her childhood best friend. The Vanderbilt money was not insubstantial, but with Willie K.'s inheritance from his father, equal to roughly $1.6 billion today, as well as the control of the Vanderbilt Railway Investments, Alva had access to all the money she needed. Alva's daughter, Consuelo's upbringing was closed, structured, and entirely controlled by her mother. In her own memoir, The Glitter and the Gold, Consuelo herself states, She was a born dictator. She was always ready for a fight. Alva knew all too well what the impact of a marriage to a British aristocrat would do socially, and she was determined to top them all. Nothing less than a duke would do for Consuelo. She set about training Consuelo with a band of tutors and governesses as she focused her child-rearing efforts on creating her own perfect duchess. By the time Consuelo was eight or nine years old, she was fluent in French and German. Her scope of knowledge into her teenage years encompassed art and social history, literature, and music. Determined that Consuelo would have the perfect comportment as well as being fully educated, Alva insisted on the cruel practice of strapping Consuelo in while performing her lessons. As Consuelo tells it in her memoir, Sitting up straight was one of the crucial tests of ladylike behavior. A horrible instrument was devised which I had to wear during my lessons. It was a steel rod which ran down my spine and was strapped to my waist and over my shoulders. Another strap went around my forehead to the rod. I probably owe my straight back to those many hours of discomfort. As Alva's own marriage to Willie Kay began to break down and he began to philander, Alva occupied the time she wasn't working on Consuelo by building her magnificent Newport Cottage marble house in collaboration with her preferred Gilded Age architect Richard Morris Hunt, who had also built her petit chateau on Fifth Avenue. Despite the grandeur of Marble House's public rooms in which Alva attempted to recreate her own Versailles, Consuelo's own room and living space was austere, and it was here where she was forced to spend a great deal of time when not at Newport social events constantly chaperoned by her mother. As Consuelo entered her late teens, Alva, intent on sealing a marriage deal, brought Consuelo to London to meet with Lady Paget, the former Minnie Stevens, in the scene that opened this episode. <laughs> 
Lady Paget was born American and whose mother was the similarly formidable Mrs. Perrin Stevens, another outsider who launched her own assault to claw her way into New York society. Mrs. Perrin Stevens was a grocer's daughter from Lowell, Massachusetts, which will not get you much in society, and it didn't until she married Perrin Stevens, the owner of the famed Fifth Avenue Hotel. It was said in hushed tones, but likely invented, that Mr. Stevens had met Mrs. Stevens when she worked as a chambermaid at the hotel. Nonetheless, at his death, she inherited his considerable fortune and she was off on her social ascent. Mrs. Stevens was intent on an appropriately successful marriage for her own daughter as well, since she too was shut out of New York's ballrooms. Off she and Minnie went to England, and despite some offers, including one from Sir Arthur Paget, an army general, she declined, her mother holding out for something better, which never quite came. Prospects running thin, Minnie was forced to acquiesce and to marry Sir Arthur Paget. I'm sure a wee bit of that Stephen's money sweetened the deal for Sir Arthur. Minnie, now as Lady Paget, had a title herself and London society at her fingertips. And ever resourceful, she began a reputable business, you could say, connecting young American women into British society. Understanding how both the British and American systems worked, and having been at the center of both, she was ideally positioned, as she inferred to clients, to be of help. She didn't accept every girl, and the price, of course, was commensurate with the effort needed to secure a match. It was directly to Lady Paget's door that Alva hastened to present herself with Consuelo. Again, in her memoir, Consuelo recalled the meeting with Lady Paget and her mother. Once the greetings had been exchanged, I realized with a sense of acute discomfort that I was being critically appraised by a pair of hard green eyes. The simple dress that I was wearing, my shyness and diffidence, which in France was regarded as natural in a debutante, appeared to waken her ridicule. My lack of beauty, for I was still in my ugly duckling stage, made me painfully sensitive to criticism. I felt like a gawky, graceless child under her scrutiny. Finally, Lady Paget issued her assessment. If I am to bring her out, she told my mother, she must be able to compete at least as far as clothes are concerned with far better-looking girls. And so Alva set to work, as Consuelo recalled, Tool must give way to satin, décolletage to a more generous display of neck and arms, naivete to sophistication. Consuelo was 17 years old. While Alva and Consuelo were still in London, an invitation arrived from Lady Paget to attend a luncheon party at which one of the guests would be the 24-year-old Duke of Marlborough, Charles Spencer Churchill, known as Sonny from his title, the Earl of Sunderland, and who was a first cousin to Winston Churchill. His gifts were neither wit nor charm, but he was a duke and he had Blenheim Palace, one of England's great country estates, to call home. Alva made up her mind. This was the one, and she set her sights on arranging the match. In her campaign to position Consuelo as a natural fit for the Duchess market, she took the bold move of having Consuelo's portrait painted by Carolus Duran in Paris, who had also painted Consuelo as a child. But this time, Instead of the classic velvet background and lush silks that was the usual background for Gilded Age portraits, Consuelo, at Alva's direction, was painted in the style of Gainsborough, Romney, and Reynolds, and appeared looking like an English duchess. There could be no stronger advertising message than this. Sonny needed money, of course. His sole focus was to save his family's estate and continue the ancestral line— and this was no secret. After Consuelo and the Duke spent some time together in England, Alva invited the Duke to visit them in Newport for the summer season. He arrived, and after a round of outings with Consuelo among the Newport set, one evening after dinner in the quiet of the Gothic room at Marble House, the Duke asked Consuelo to be his duchess. She accepted, and the marriage took place an astonishing six weeks later. What Consuelo never realized is that Alva had been hard at work arranging all the details for the previous six months. 
Consuelo had, of course, announced to her mother previously that she wanted to make her own choices about who she married and was in fact in love with another, Winthrop Rutherford, and whose proposal she'd in fact accepted. Alva would hear none of it. After feigning a heart attack from which she miraculously recovered when Consuelo relented, she admonished her with the words, I do the thinking, you do what you were told. The price was settled. The $65 million in today's money was in railroad shares and an annual income for life. The New York crowds were thick outside St. Thomas Episcopal Church on Fifth Avenue on November 6, 1895. Consuelo's wedding to the Duke of Marlborough, thanks to her mother's and the newspaper's publicity machine, it was the most talked about event in decades. But Consuelo arrived late to her wedding, delayed in her bedroom in floods of tears, her red cheeks said to be visible behind her veil. No one could call this a love match, and no one did. As papers reported the next day, she is a duchess, and indeed she was to Alva's deep satisfaction. Not all marriages were certainly as dramatic, public, or as wrenching as the Vanderbilt Union, but Consuelo's story is not over. There is a chapter yet to come. But now, to finish the story of Jenny Jerome. Jenny and Randolph, soon following their marriage, began to lead separate lives, although she remained influential in his political career in Parliament. It has been reported and surmised that Jenny engaged in many affairs in amorous liaison, most notably, of course, it is rumored with the Prince of Wales himself, whom she affectionately called Tum Tum. While their relationship seemingly began as a passionate love affair, Randolph pursued his own life and political career, even supported to a degree by Jenny. However, there was separation. Jenny was forced to read of his resignation from Parliament one morning in the newspaper. Randolph had exhibited odd behavior for some time. He openly shared that it was illness, then called, quote, the general paralysis of the brain. It is thought that it was syphilis that was affecting him. When Consuelo Vanderbilt, now Duchess of Marlborough, arrived at Blenheim following her wedding that same year of 1895 after an extended cruise, one of the first to greet her was Jenny, the now-widowed Lady Churchill. As for the sprawling Blenheim estate, which was to be her new home, Consuelo found an immense, cold, drafty, endless honeycomb of halls, salons, and drawing rooms. Despite the eventual regilding and renovations now to be powered by Vanderbilt money, she and so many of the other young women in similar situations found homes completely unlike what they were used to in New York's palaces of splendor. Consuelo herself writes in her memoir, It is a shame that in so great a house there should be not one livable room. Staff in the grand houses, it has been said, was often more snobby and privileged than their masters and mistresses. Unlike back in America, where servants were treated often with disdain, being in service in Britain, particularly in a noble house, was a source of pride, and a strict hierarchy was in place. Consuelo notes that once she asked a butler to add a log to the fire in her bedroom. A butler would never perform such a task and told her he'd call a footman. Consuelo, in her spunky, true, can-do American spirit, told him, Don't worry, I'll do it myself. As we've discussed earlier, Consuelo's marriage to the Duke was never about love, and love never grew between them as it did in some other marriages. Consuelo turned to a vigorous effort of charity and public works and dedicated the power she had to helping others. Consuelo, unwilling to remain in a loveless marriage, indulged in several affairs outside the marriage. One of her greatest friends and allies was the Duke of Marlborough's cousin, Winston Churchill. With such a unique position to understand her and her position, Winston stepped in and negotiated a separation between Consuelo and the Duke. They ultimately divorced, and the marriage was finally annulled. Consuelo was finally free to marry the man that she loved, and in a truly romantic ending to the story, one whose eyes she had caught so many years before the dashing French aviator Jacques Balson. They married in 1921 and remained married for 35 years. 
Furthermore, despite years of tension, Consuelo and Alva finally reconciled. Alva had divorced Willie Kay and remarried. She married Oliver Belmont, with whom she fell in love in Newport. She became a dedicated and vocal supporter of women's suffrage and was joined in the effort by Consuelo. Alva always claimed her goal was never other than to empower Consuelo to be a strong woman. However, she finally publicly admitted, I forced my daughter to marry a duke. Consuelo's legacy is rich, as noted by writers and historians. Without the immense Vanderbilt coffers, Britain may truly have lost Blenheim, and for that, one is grateful today. Historian and author Amanda Mackenzie Stewart, in her double biography Consuelo and Alva, tells the story of a visit to Blenheim one day with her own young daughter. In pointing out both portraits of Consuelo that still hang there, the Carolus Duran and the John Singer Sargent painted in 1905, the guide, in looking at Stewart's young daughter, remarked, Consuelo was just your age when she came to Blenheim, but she got out in the end. Thank heavens. We have, in many ways, only begun to tell the tale of so many of these so-called million-dollar princesses. There are other stories. There was Mary Leiter, the heiress to Chicago's Marshall Field fortune, whose true love affair with George Curzon is said to have been an inspiration for Clara and the Earl of Grantham in Downton Abbey. And there is the story of Francis Work, a Gilded Age socialite who, in defying her father's wish, married an Irish baronet and whose descendants are part of today's British royal family, one of whom will be king one day. Francis Work was Princess Diana's great-grandmother. And there are so many more. As last season's HBO series The Gilded Age drew to a close, much speculation was directed at Bertha Russell's daughter, who for some feel Bertha had been setting up to marry a British aristocrat herself. Well, we shall see. We are also left to wonder just what she will be in for and just what kind of marriage it will be. And to my listeners, thank you for joining me for another episode of The Gilded Gentleman. The Gilded Gentleman is produced by Bowery Boys Media, and this episode was edited and produced by Kieran Gannon. I invite my listeners to become patrons of the show at patreon.com slash thegildedgentleman. Your support helps me to manage the costs of researching, writing, creating, and producing the show. I couldn't do it without you. I'll see you soon. And after all... What's life without a little glint of gold? The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home.